All right, and everyone else, we are going to be in Revelation chapter 2 today. So you can grab your Bibles, grab your phone, grab your tablet, meet me in Revelation chapter 2. I need to shout out to my daughter today, who's not here in the service right now, but uh, Kaylee is 10 years old this morning, and so we are celebrating Kaylee today, and uh, yeah, we just love our smart and sassy girl who is now a tween officially, which are just words that just seem to have come way too fast as we're getting ready to head into the teenage years as well. But happy birthday, Kaylee. We love you so much, and uh, yeah, we're so proud of you. So as we are in Revelation, uh, we are working our way through this. We've called this series Apocalypse Now. We are working through Revelation bit by bit. Uh, Some of you have asked how long we will be there. I don't actually know. We don't have a set plan to this. We just decided we're going to start in Revelation and get moving, and we will just go for a while, and we'll see where we're at. So uh, right now, we are in the specific messages to the seven churches, and we didn't plan this, but the way the timing kind of works out is nice, where uh, this will take us up to the week before Easter, which is Mission Sunday, and so we will have a presentation from our missions team uh, on that Sunday. The Sunday after that is Easter, because Easter is coming up pretty quick, and then uh, we'll see where we're at from there, and if we feel so led, we'll jump back into Revelation and keep going, and if something else comes up that God puts in our hearts, we'll do that as well, but I kind of think we'll just stay in Revelation for a while. I think we're just going to keep on walking, and we'll see where the Lord leads us in that. So one of the cool parts of my job is uh, I get to do weddings. And so as a pastor, uh, a couple will come to you, say, we want to be married, and it's a pretty cool job to actually get to do that. Uh, That's something that there's not that many people in our society who are able to do. And so as a pastor, they will come, and we go through a premarital counseling process, and uh, I really have come to value that a lot, not just in terms of getting to prepare people for marriage, but also in just getting to really know a couple and really get to spend some time with them and, and help them get to know each other better and get them ready for this great big adventure that they're about to jump into. But when you're performing a wedding, uh, like, it's a really cool moment, not going to lie. A really cool moment to be able to say, by the power vested in me, by the province of Ontario, I now pronounce that you are husband and wife in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And then they're married when I say that. Like, that just still blows my mind. Like, that's the moment where you're married. You're going to sign a license, and it's going to have to get registered at the government, but you're legally married at that moment. When I say you're husband and wife, you're husband and wife. And if I don't feel like saying it that day, you're not going to be husband and wife. So I always tell people, be nice to me. And so that is something that I really have come to love about my job is that you get to walk with all of these couples, and, uh, and some weddings are more challenging than others. It, it honestly depends on how, how much of a nightmare the couple's going to be as you're planning this stuff out. Uh, ben and Pastor Sarah were a real handful, I'm not going to lie. As we uh, are planning a wedding, one of the things we talk about, of course, is what's the ceremony going to be like? So we have a kind of a standard Christian ceremony that we do. There's a couple of legal things that we have to do, but there's also then a lot of flexibility. But one thing that shows up in every wedding is the vow. And in the vow, uh, in our Christian context, we are saying you are making a vow to one another, of course, but you're also making a vow to the Lord. The Lord is involved in this vow. There's, there are three parties to this particular covenant that is being formed. And so vows can be very traditional. Uh, there's the traditional ones, and we often do the traditional ones, which is I take you to be my lawfully wedded wife, to have and to hold, for richer, for poor, in sickness and in health. You've seen that in movies. Maybe that was part of your vows as well. And sometimes people want to write their own, and it's, it's more personal and maybe more poetic, but all vows are generally the same in that there is a a pledge happening that includes devotion and fidelity. 
right? I am yours and you are mine. That's part of what's happening in a vow. I will be faithful to you and you will be faithful to me. That's part of the promise that is being made. There is this vow that we're committed to this. We're all in, right? And, and we know in our sinfulness, tragically, that these vows are not always kept. But on the wedding day, like that is, that is what we are saying to one another, is that I'm all in with you and you're all in with me. There's no wedding vow that has ever been shared that says like, I'm halfway in. We'll see how it goes. There's no wedding vow that says like, well, I plan to be committed when it's convenient and when life is, is appropriate uh, and allows me to do it, but otherwise I might go in a different direction. Like there's power in the vow and there's romance to it because of the commitment that's being made. It's saying that for richer, for poorer, like whether we have money or whether we're broke, whether we're sick, whether we're healthy in the good times and the bad times, I'm all in with you. And you're all in with me. That's the nature of the vow. And in the Bible, in both Testaments, when God is talking about his relationship with his people, marriage is one of the metaphors that he uses to communicate what that relationship is like. In the Old Testament, it's God and Israel. And God portrays himself as a husband. And Israel is like his bride. And when Israel would go and chase after other gods, we would see sort of the broken heart of God, like a, a jilted husband saying, my wife has left me for another lover. Like that's what it felt like to him. My wife is cheating on me with somebody else. In the New Testament, the picture is given of Jesus as the groom, and we, the church, are his bride. And that is the same idea that when it comes to our walk with God, just like in a human marriage, it's that there's this idea of we are faithful to each other. God is faithful to us, and we are faithful to him. God is devoted to us. We are devoted to him. God is, is going to be faithful to who he is and what he's promised. And in return, we are saying to him, just like on my wedding day with Sarah, part of what is suggested in the vow is I'm not looking to other women. I'm not looking to other things. It's just you. You are the only one for me. You have my heart. And in our walk with God, it's a similar type picture that we say to Jesus, I am devoted to you. You have my heart. You have my worship. You have my affection. You are it. And as I pledge that devotion to you, you are going to be faithful to me. I know that you are. And yet there are these times in scripture where the people of God are not faithful. They are not fully devoted. And as we jump into our text today, there's a church here in the book of Revelation that is letting some compromise creep in. Uh, they are being faithful, but there are some who are not being fully faithful. And so Jesus speaks to that church about what we're talking about. So let's take a look then at our text. We're in Revelation chapter 2, and we are starting in verse 12. Jesus is speaking to the angel of the church in Pergamum, right? These are the words of him who has the sharp, double-edged sword. I know where you live, where Satan has his throne, yet you remain true to my name. You did not renounce your faith in me, not even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness who was put to death in your city where Satan lives. Nevertheless, I have a few things against you. There are some among you who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin so that they ate food sacrificed to idols and committed sexual immorality. Likewise, you also have those who hold to the teachings of the Nicolaitans. Repent, therefore. Otherwise, I will soon come to you and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who is victorious, I will give some of the hidden manna. I will also give that person a white stone with a new name written on it, known only to the one who receives it. 
So this is the third letter, the third specific message to the seven churches of Revelation. We've talked about all of this already, and if you've missed any messages, you can go back and have a listen. They're all on our YouTube channel, and they're all on our audio podcast, which you can find either in iTunes or from our website. But Revelation was written, it was addressed to seven churches that existed in seven cities of what we now call Turkey. Uh, At the time, they called it Asia Minor. And it was a church that was going through a time of persecution, a time of difficulty. Persecution was getting worse and was going to get worse. And so this letter from Jesus comes to encourage these churches to be faithful and to hold on. And so there are things in here that are obviously meant for all the churches, and yet each of the seven churches gets a specific comment at the beginning of this book of Revelation, where Jesus speaks to some of the issues that the churches are facing, uh, typically has some commendation, some encouragement for what the church is going through, and some just kind of cheering them on and coming alongside them. Uh, Typically, there's also some correction. There's a rebuke in there. There's a warning. uh, And then there's a promise of reward. And so there's a little bit of a formula to these letters. They're not all exactly the same to each of these messages to the churches. But we're in Pergamum today. So Pergamum, was a real city, and there's some of the ruins of it there that are still there today. You can go and visit. Pergamum was an intellectual center. It was a place that had a huge library. It was known for its scholarship. It was known for, uh, they didn't quite have universities in quite the same way at this time, but just people, philosophers would get together and have deep discussions and talk about things. So it was known for a place where smart people like to hang out. And it was also known as a place, it had this nickname, which was the Warden of Imperial Worship. The warden of imperial worship, or like sort of the the guardian, the protector of imperial worship. And so we have talked already that one of the challenges that all of these churches are facing is that Rome rules their world right now. The Roman Empire has taken over everything. And one of the things that Rome did at this time was they were forcing their citizens not just to honor the emperor, not just to submit to the emperor, but to actually worship the emperor. Emperor worship was common. And they would actually be expected to go to temples and offer sacrifices in worship of the emperor. They would have to to pray prayers and make pledges with this idea that the emperor, this this, uh, king who sits on the throne in Rome, is actually a god who has come down in human form. So this becomes problematic for the Christ follower who says, I believe Jesus is God. I believe Jesus is worthy of worship. I believe Jesus has said he's the only one to follow and he's the only way to heaven and he's the only one who's worthy of worship. And so it's not feasible for a Christ follower to engage in emperor worship. And yet it's going around everywhere and and it's happening all around them. And there is this intense pressure financially and socially to do this. And if you didn't do it, then people wouldn't trade with you and they wouldn't buy from your business. If you didn't do it, you would not be invited to social occasions. People would shun you and cut you out. And if you didn't do it, and this is starting to happen in some of these places, there could actually be torture, there could be jail time, there could be execution, there could be death at the end of it. And so they're surrounded by this all the time. And Pergamum is no different than any of these other cities. And one of the things that Christians got saddled with early on was that they were really bad patriots. They were really bad citizens. 
Because good Roman citizens were devoted to Rome, and they would fight for Rome, and they would give their taxes to Rome, and they would worship the emperor, and they would do what Rome asked of them. And Christ followers at the time were not doing that. Christ followers, many of them were saying, well, no, we love our enemies. We're not going to fight for Rome. Uh, Jesus taught us a different way, and we're not going to worship the Roman emperor. We're going to worship Jesus and Jesus alone. And so these consequences would come upon them, and they would be struggling through all of these things. But, you know, for the Christ follower in Rome or for the Christ follower anywhere today, uh, these Jesus followers said, like, well, we will pay our taxes, certainly, because we're told to pay our taxes in Scripture, and we will honor our leaders in our government, and we will uh, pray for them because we're commanded to pray for them, and we will submit to them, except in cases where they order us to do things that are contrary to the word of God. We can go that far, but we can't go any further. Because even though they were part of this Roman Empire, uh, they were committed to the kingdom of God, right? They were committed to Christ the king, first, by far. And so sometimes this conversation comes up of what does it mean to be a patriot? What does it mean to be a patriotic Canadian? Are we allowed to be patriotic? And I would say, well, yes, I love our country. I am grateful for our country. We won the lottery, if we live here, right? Like of all the places in the world, we, we won the lottery. We're in a land that has wealth. We're in a land that has resources. We're in a land that's very peaceful. We're in a land that has freedom. Like we have all of these things here that are incredible. Like I am so grateful for where we live. But even as we say that, that we, we love our country, we pray for our country, we honor our leaders, etc., that has to be with the understanding that the kingdom of God is up here on the priority list and Canada's down here, Right? that we serve Christ the King first and foremost. And if the kingdom of Canada and the kingdom of God ever come into conflict, then we choose the kingdom of God. And part of what we have to be careful of, and we're not typically like rah-rah patriotic, maybe the way the Americans are, but part of the, the issue with being patriotic as well is also understanding that Canada as a nation does a lot of things that are sinful and that are contrary to the word of God. And that has historically done some things that are sinful and contrary to the word of God. So even as we say we love it, we also have to acknowledge that side of it. And when the word of God comes into conflict with our country, we pick the word of God. And so the people of Pergamum, as with many of these places, are, are paying that price for saying, like, we are Christ followers first and foremost. We are not followers of Rome as our main identity. We are Christ followers first and foremost. Anything else that comes is going to fit into that understanding that Christ comes first, his word comes first, his kingdom comes first, and that's going to be our top priority by far. So to these people in this church who are struggling with all of this going on around them, uh, Jesus begins to speak, starting in verse 12. To the angel of the church in Pergamum write, These are the words of him who has the sharp, double-edged sword. So you might remember earlier in Revelation, as we worked our way through Revelation chapter 1, John sees Jesus in his glorified, resurrected state. And as he sees Jesus, he describes him as, you know, he's got a sash and his hair is white and his eyes are blazing like fire. And one of the things John said was coming out of his mouth was a sword, right? Do you remember that? That Jesus had a sword coming out of his mouth. And so that's something that gets touched on in various places in Scripture, uh, maybe most famously in Ephesians 6. 
6.17 that talks about the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. God's Word is like a sword. When God speaks, it's like a sword. And that sword speaks to his authority and to his power and to his reverence, like the reverence that we are to have for the things that, that God would speak. And so the Bible, of course, is his Word. But the Bible says in, later on in Revelation, when Jesus is coming back on the white horse, it says that the enemy and all of his armies are going to rally to fight against Jesus and the hosts of heaven. And Jesus is going to come and fight against them with the sword of his mouth. So Jesus is not coming with literal warfare. Jesus is just going to have to speak. And the reverence that the Bible holds for the word of the Lord. Like, I love it every time I read it. The creation account. Genesis 1. And, and it's just, there's nothing, right? Everything is formless and void. And God gets ready to create. And when God is going to create everything out of nothing, he doesn't need to roll up his sleeves. He doesn't need to wave his hands. He doesn't need to even get up out of his chair. God just speaks and stuff happens. God says, let there be, and there was. Let there be light, and there was. Let there be land, and there was. Let us form mankind in our own image, and there it is. God speaks, and things happen. When God speaks, empires fall. When God speaks, kings get established. When God speaks, coronavirus goes away. When God speaks, things happen. And we are to revere the word of God. We are to revere the words that he speaks. He speaks most clearly through his written word, which we revere. And so when Jesus, one of the ways that he is revealing himself in Revelation as the one who has power and authority in his words, and that is symbolized by this picture of a sword coming out of his mouth. And it's also in a juxtaposition with Rome because Rome, uh, for all of the evil and decadence and everything uh, that went with Rome, Rome did some good things as well practically. Rome helped, helped civilization move forward. They had insight into things like roads and infrastructure and how to get water to people. Uh, they had a, a very disciplined view of, of their army. Of just, It's not just about how many people you have. It's that if you train them really well, if you feed them really well, if your supply lines are good, like no one was able to stand up to the Roman army. And so for a long time, Rome just conquered everybody that they came up against. No one could stand up against them. Rome just won battle after battle after battle, and not literally every single battle, but every country they came across, every other empire that they bumped up against, Rome was able to conquer and once they did, they ruled with an iron fist. Like, they were a scary group. Like, they were the ones that came up with crucifixion, which was how Jesus was going to die. And that's how they treated criminals, partly as a way of terrifying everybody else. To say, don't get out of line, or you're going to hang on a cross like this criminal over here. And so they were a brutal empire in that sense. And there was kind of a, a mocking joke about it, because they talked about what was called the Pax Romana, which means the Roman peace, or the peace of Rome. That in a lot of Roman places, they didn't have a lot of crime. They, they really, it was a peaceful time that if you were a Roman citizen, you could walk through the world just untouched because the fury of Rome, if anyone were to touch one of their citizens, would be so intense. And so there was this peace, but it was the peace of like Rome standing there with a sword saying, don't you dare do anything wrong or we will cut you down. And so Rome ruled by the sword, and that's part of the beauty of how Jesus reveals himself in this passage, is that for Pergamum and all of these cities who are struggling under the Roman sword, Jesus steps up and says, I am the one who has a better sword. 
I am the one who's really in charge. I am the one who has the authority. I am the one who is really running the show. Rome is not actually that much in charge. I am the one who holds the sword. Verse 13, Jesus says to the church, I know where you live, where Satan has his throne. Yet you remain true to my name. You did not renounce your faith in me, not even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was put to death in your city where Satan lives. So again, in, in these letters, so many of them, Jesus starts off by saying, I know, I know you, or I know your deeds, or I know where you live, right? There's just this, this beauty of the Lord saying, I know who you are. I know what you're going through. There is nothing that we are facing that he is surprised by in any way. He knows. So Jesus says, I know your struggle. I know your context. I know it's difficult where you're at. I know that you've remained true. You have not renounced your faith in me. There is faithfulness going on, even in the midst of persecution. And so Jesus is saying, hey, in the midst of even someone dying in your midst for their declaration that Jesus is Lord, even in the midst of that, you are holding on. And sometimes in our trials, that's actually all we need to do. We just need to be holding on. One of my favorite things I saw, this was like almost a year ago now, at the very beginning of COVID, someone had posted like, hey, uh, you know, in this time, especially those first few months where we were locked down, you don't need to lose 15 pounds. You don't need to master a new language. You don't need to suddenly become a good cook. You don't need to turn your kids into A-plus students. You just need to get through this. And there was kind of this pressure, right, of like, well, I got to renovate the kitchen, obviously, if I'm going to be home all this time. Like, there's this view that, like, you're supposed to be doing all these extra things with this time. Sometimes in the trial, it's enough just to hold on. It's enough just to hold on. And so Jesus says, even though there's martyrdom happening in, in your city, in your midst, hey, you, you haven't turned away. Right? So there's, there's encouragement there. There's commendation there. And Jesus notes it twice in these verses where Satan has his throne and where Satan lives. And so as with all things Revelation, there's a world of debate into what some of these things are. We're not told clearly uh, what that refers to. One theory that I thought was compelling was that in this city at this time, uh, there was an altar. It was called the Pergamum Altar, and it was used for sacrifices to idols, um, with Pergamum also being the warden of imperial worship. It could be a reference to that as well, or it could just be the idea that people are actually dying in Pergamum right now. Like Antipas has been killed, uh, perhaps more more are being killed or are going to be killed as well, that maybe there's just an unusual level of persecution happening in this particular city. But whatever it means, however we interpret it, uh, Satan obviously has his foothold in this city in a particular way, that there is something about what is going on in this city where Satan is opposing the gospel and is opposing the Christians, and there is something, uh, you know, spiritually, whether it's a power or principality, a demonic force that's over this city, or whether it's just referring to that persecution or the emperor worship or the idol worship. Satan has a foothold here in one way or another. And then Antipas, we don't really know anything about. This is all we hear about him in scripture. Uh, there is a tradition certainly in church history that Antipas uh, had come and he had brought the gospel to Pergamum and then he was killed by being put in a bronze pot uh, shaped like a bull and was literally roasted to death in this pot. Someone said to me after the first service, um, can you imagine living in a world where that's happening around you? 
and still being faithful to Jesus. Like, if that's what's on the table, potentially, of how you might get called out, like, you think, you know, even today, uh, around the world where there's persecution, like, it's, it could be a bullet in the head, it could be something like that, which is no less awful, obviously, but the, the depth of depravity of what is coming against the church right now, and Jesus says, even in light of that, you have not renounced my name. You have held on. You are still declaring that Jesus is Lord. You are still holding holding on in the midst of all of it. And yet, even as Jesus commends them for holding on, there is correction and rebuke coming as well. Verse 14 and 15. Nevertheless, I have a few things against you. Um, I feel like if Jesus says those words to you, those are kind of scary words, right? If Jesus Christ himself says, here's a few things I'm concerned about, then we need to pay attention. So I have a few things against you. There are some among you who hold to the teaching of Balaam who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin so that they ate food sacrificed to idols and committed sexual immorality. Likewise, you also have those who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. So we talked about the Nicolaitans a couple of weeks ago. We don't know a lot about them historically, but uh, there is a suggestion anyway that it was some sort of compromising theology, that perhaps they were kind of taking Jesus and some of the pagan stuff around them and kind of mixing the religions together. Uh, we don't really know specifics about it. That Even that is sort of a, a bit of an educated guess. But, um, but the Balaam thing is interesting. So Jesus says, uh, some of you are, are being like Balaam right now. And so Balaam is a story that I will encourage you to read. Numbers 22 to 25. Go read it this week. If you haven't read it in a while, he was the one who rode the donkey. Do you remember this story? Uh, the donkey starts talking at him. Um, and that's not the part I want to emphasize this morning. But Balaam is, uh, I was just digging back into it again this week. I hadn't read his story in a while and just fascinated by this man. So Balaam is a prophet of the Lord. He knows the Lord. He knows the Lord's voice. He's not an Israelite, which is interesting. Uh, he's in the land. He's not part of the group that came out of Egypt. And yet as Israel Israel does come out of Egypt, they began to come into contact with different nations, and they're fighting their way to take control of the Holy Land, and there's a nation on the earth called Moab. So Balak, in our passage that gets mentioned, Balak is the king of Moab. And the king of Moab is nervous that these Israelites are conquering their way across the world towards the promised land. And so Balak decides that I'm going to get this prophet to come, this prophet who knows the voice of the Lord. I'm going to get him to go and curse Israel. Because if he curses Israel, then God will be against Israel, and then I won't have to worry about Israel taking over my land. And so Balak gets in touch with Balaam, makes promises of wealth. I need you to come and curse these people. And Balaam says, I will come, but I can only say what God gives me to say. I can't promise I'll curse anyone. What God gives me to say, I will say. So Balaam goes. He has an encounter with an angel, with the donkey, and you can go read that on your own. But when he comes back to Balak, uh, he says, all right, well, this is what the Lord says about Israel. Uh, I can't curse them. I can't curse them because God's not cursing them. God is blessing them. And I can't curse the ones that God has blessed. And God is with them. And so I, I can't do what you're asking me to do. And Balak says, hey, I, I called you to, to actually curse them. You're just blessing them. That's not what I called you to do. I promised you money and wealth. Balaam says, it doesn't matter how much money you give me. I have to do what God has called me to do. And Balak says, try again. Go see what God says. I want these people cursed. And so Balaam goes off and comes back. And he says, I can't do it. 
God is blessing these people. I can't curse them. And Balak says, who do you think you are? You're not doing what I'm wanting you to do. And he says, again, I can only do what God has told me to do. I can't cross that line. I can't curse them because God is not cursing them. He is blessing them. This happens again, and it happens again. And then Balaam starts speaking against the nations that are going to get taken over by Israel eventually, that are going to end up falling. And Balak is at the end of his rope. And Balaam the whole time is saying, I don't know what you wanted from me. I've told you from the very beginning. I have to be obedient to the Lord. I have to do what he says I am supposed to do. I can only speak what he gives me to speak. I will not cross that line. And if that's where Balaam's story ended, he'd be one of the great heroes of all of Scripture, right? Who doesn't want to be like that? Is that not inspiring to hear that story and go hear someone in the midst of pressure and with the promises of riches and with all of the, the, you know, the threat of a Moabite army and a powerful man trying to get him to do what he wants him to do and Balaam refuses to budge. I will not move from this spot. I will not compromise what God has told me to do. I can only be obedient to him. Amen. Hallelujah. Let's be more like that, right? And then, that story ends, Numbers 25. Numbers 26 starts and says, basically, then Israel got corrupted by Moab, that nation, Balak's nation that they were bumping up against. And they started intermarrying, which they weren't supposed to do, and they started worshiping idols, which they weren't supposed to do, and they, they got corrupted. And Israel fell into that trap. And then God's judgment came upon them, and they were punished for what they were doing. His judgment then lifted. And a little bit later, in Numbers 31, and this is what Jesus is getting at in today's verses, we find out what happened in there, right? Because it went from, hey, Israel's blessed by God. Balaam's not going to cross that line to curse them. And then in the next chapter, Israel's corrupted itself with Moab. It's compromised. It's fallen into sexual immorality. It's fallen into idol worship. And God's judgment is coming upon them. What happened in there? How did that happen so quick? And Numbers 31 tells us what happened, that Balaam, who a few chapters earlier was saying, I cannot budge from my convictions of what God has called me to do, Balaam went to Moab and said, here's how you take Israel down. You just need to intermarry with them. You just need to, to get them to, to change their religious beliefs. You need to get that to happen. So in other words, Balaam, who had said wholeheartedly, I cannot curse what God is blessing, then went to the enemy and said, but I can tell you how to seduce them. And then once they are seduced... God's favor won't be with them in the same way anymore. God's judgment will come upon them because he's told them not to do this stuff. So here's how you get Israel. And there's nothing in between those two stories that tells us, how did you get from there to there? Like, how did you go from this incredibly principled man who would not budge to someone who kind of like, here's a backdoor way that you can come against Israel and find a way to corrupt them and get God opposed to them instead of in favor with them. And that's how you can solve the Israel problem. The scripture says Balaam would eventually be killed by Israel as this sort of comes out. And, and as they go to war against Moab, Balaam would die by the sword. But it's just, it's a crazy story. And, and you're going, okay, so how do I be more like Balaam in the first part and not at all like Balaam in the second part? 
Because there was a point in his life where Balaam was uncompromising. I will not budge from my convictions of obedience to the Lord. And then there was a point where he said, I'll actually compromise a fair bit in order to, to get what I want or to help you get what you want. And so there's a warning bell in this story. And Jesus says, there are some of you among you who are doing that. And it doesn't mean necessarily that they're literally like looking to Balaam as an example of how they should follow, but it seems more likely that Jesus is saying, there's some among you who are acting like Balaam did. There are some among you who, though, even though there is this appearance of faithfulness and devotion, you are actually compromising things in a way that is ungodly and unhealthy. And that is the warning of this story for us. And, and the, the heads up, A.W. Tozer says this, one compromise here, another there, and soon enough, the so-called Christian and the man in the world look the same. In one moment, Balaam looks like an incredible man of God, and in another moment, he looks incredibly slimy and self-serving. And, and again, I wish scripture gave us more of what was that story like? What was that transition like? But the call against the Pergamum church is that there are some among you who are compromising. We think the Nicolaitans were probably a compromising movement, and there are apparently some in the Pergamum church who aren't being fully faithful, who maybe are literally falling into either sexual immorality or idolatry or both. And there's this call to, uh, to compromise. And I understand and we want to be wary of the fact that uh, there was all sorts of pressure on this church to compromise, right? Just worship the emperor. Everyone else is doing it. Come to the idol worship. The world around you is doing it. And the problem for so many of these churches in Revelation, the nature of the rebuke that is coming against them is you are starting to look like the cities around you. Right? You are not the pure church that you are called to be. The cities, the culture, the pressure is starting to come upon you. And, and that is something for all of us to be wary of. In our lives personally, where are we compromising? Where have we compromised his word? Sometimes that's very obvious. Some of you right now know exactly what I'm talking about in your life, where you know you're doing things you shouldn't be doing that are compromising God's word. You know that. And, and there's a compromise there, and you, you can tell that very easily. There's other compromises that are much more subtle. It's interesting in the story with Israel and Moab that it didn't come down ultimately to just a great big battle. It went down the road, but it came to Moab had a much sneakier way of taking Israel down. We're just going to, we'll seduce some of the men, and we'll get the intermarriages happening. After that, we'll introduce some idol worship, and that's going to be how we take Israel down. And so where Pergamum needed to be aware that there is this compromising pressure upon you to be more like the world around you, it's also our job as churches today to say, where is that happening amongst us? And, and there is a part that we can't avoid in that we are a church set in a culture, right? We are a church. We are in southwestern Ontario. It is the 21st century. We are Canadian. And there is just a culture to it. And there's a culture to Essex County. And I, I've just pastored in different places. The Essex County culture is different than the Sudbury culture, which is different than the Burlington culture where I grew up. Even though we're all Canadian, there's a different flavor. You swim in the waters of wherever you are. And part of that, understanding that is good because it means that we are aware of where God has planted us and how we are going to share the gospel and how we are going to do ministry in a way that the world around us can, can see and understand. Right? We have to be interpreters of the gospel for the world around us, not compromising it in any way, but speaking in a language that the world can receive it without compromising anything. But there's another side of it. 
where we swim in the waters of this world all day long. We've grown up in it, and we work in it, and, and we maybe go to school in it, and it's there. And so to be aware of, okay, so where are there things in the culture that are perhaps getting into the church? Where are we maybe compromising things that we're not aware of, but it's just we're so used to it, we're so comfortable with it. And so most obviously, I would say one key area where this happens is we are a very I-centered culture right? Everything in our culture is very much geared towards the individual. And this is just North America in general. We're a very individual culture. I've had the privilege of ministering in a few different places around the world. And a lot of these places are much more communally minded. They're, they're committed to the greater good. They're focused on the family and the broader family and the church family in a way that we're really not. We're a culture that very much says you do what's best for you. If other stuff fits into it, that's okay, but it has to be what's best for you. And so we're very kind of me-centered. We're very me-first. And that's something that we're, we just grow up in. And we see it in our movies and in our music and in our commercials and in just the things that we value. It's been very interesting to me that the, the worst-hit countries on earth uh, of COVID, a lot of them are the me-centered cultures. Because a lot of the cultures that are very community-centered uh, just have taken on greater restrictions, and they've done it without complaining, and they haven't had the same struggle against rights and freedoms that we have in a, a very independent, freedom-centered culture. And so we need to be aware of that. I've talked with the worship leaders about this. Like, let's be aware of how often the word I sneaks into our worship music. It's there a lot, and that's not our worship leader's fault. That's just the culture that we are in. The church culture right now focuses on I a lot. Uh, I had someone leave a church once, and they said, uh, I like this church over here better because they do sort of life coach teaching. Like it's kind of, you know, sermons are 10 steps to a better marriage and five steps to a better this, and, and I'm really looking for life coaching preaching because it really helps me live my best life. Uh, and I said, I don't want to do that, honestly. <laughs> I, don't, I don't feel compelled to do that. There has to be application, obviously, that's going to help us in life. But I don't want the focus to ever be us and what's going to help us be us. Like, it, it should be centered on Christ and centered on his word. And so we need to intentionally think about this stuff and intentionally be aware of it as a church, but also for us as individuals, where, as we swim in the waters of this world, is that perhaps affecting the way we're living our lives? Where it's perhaps affecting our walk with Jesus? Where it's perhaps drawing us into sin, drawing us into falling away from his word? And so there is this warning to this church. Compromise has gotten in the door, Pergamum. Compromise is there. Right? Balaam was this compromiser. Uh, the Nicolaitans were most likely some sort of compromised culture. Uh, we are in this place where that has crept in. And so even though you've not renounced me, even though as a church you have endured and are holding on, not everybody amongst you is being truly faithful. Not everyone amongst you is living that sort of wedding vow devotion to Jesus. They are letting other things come in and get in the way. And that will again always be our challenge. We are not literally falling on our knees and worshiping idols in our culture, but what is a, something that has perhaps become an idol in our heart or become an idol in our mind? What's something that gets our time and our devotion and our mental energy? What is something that gets our affection that might be pulling us away from Jesus being the center of all of that? And so there is a correction that comes to this church, and with the correction comes a warning in verse 16, repent therefore. 
Otherwise, I will soon come to you and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. I will fight against the Nicolaitans. I will fight against the Balaams in your church. I will come to you and I will deal with this thing that is sitting there in the middle of this church. Repent, therefore. And so we've talked about that word repent and it literally means transform or change. Uh, we sometimes use the U-turn picture. It means turn around. It means stop going down the road that you're going. It means something needs to change here. And it's very easy for us to focus just on behavior, like I'm going to change the behavior. I'm going to do, do this just with sheer tyranny of my will and my self-discipline. I'm going to change this. But what it's really getting at is turn around and come back to me, Jesus says. Come back to me. And behavior needs to change and will change, but you come back to me. Return to me. He is and always has been the solution. He is the solution. Not necessarily a five-step plan to change my behavior. That can be helpful sometimes, but it's not going to be helpful at all if it's not connected to return to me. Draw close to me. Walk with me. Spend time with me. Be with me. Repent, therefore. Stop compromising. Otherwise, I will come to you soon, and I will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. And so Jesus is coming to clean up the problem. He sees there's a problem. He is coming to deal with it. And it doesn't mean, like, probably in the sense of his literal return to earth on the white stallion, uh, because the Pergamum church is, you know, time is still going on, and the church is not with us anymore. So it probably meant more just in the sense of, I will come and deal with this problem in my correction. And the point of it is, hey, I'm going to come with the sword of my mouth to deal with this, and you don't want to be found in that camp that I'm coming to fight against. You don't want to be found amongst the compromisers when I come to deal with the compromisers. And so one thing I love, people who read the Bible sometimes will we'll talk and say, like, well, God's, you know, he's warning about judgment, and then he's coming in judgment, and, uh, you know, why is he always dealing in judgment? And it's like, yeah, but he is always warning. Like, that's the point. He's giving the heads up that this behavior is unacceptable. He is the parent who's saying, if you do that one more time, these are the consequences that you're going to face. And that's what a good parent does. You give your kid a chance to change, but if they refuse to change, then you have to discipline in order to shape that behavior. And so Jesus Jesus, in his grace, is giving a warning. He's saying there is still time for you to turn this around, and you don't want to be found amongst the compromisers when I come to deal with this problem. Verse 17, whoever, whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who is victorious, I will give some of the hidden manna. I will also give that person a white stone with a new name written on it, known only to the one who receives it. And so uh, there has been encouragement in this letter. There has been correction and rebuke in this letter. There has been a warning in this letter. But then each of these individual messages to the churches ends with a promise. There's always a promise of reward. There is always hope built into this, that if you are able to hold on, if you keep going, if you persevere, if you are victorious in this, then here is the reward that you are going to get. And so uh, he who has ears... Let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Our job as we deal with all of these things, it, it's helpful to understand what was going on in Pergamum. It's helpful to understand what was going on in Ephesus. We know these were real-world churches and real-world uh, struggles that they were going through. But what we want to know and what we need to pray through and what we need to discern is, what is the Spirit saying to us now? What is the Spirit saying to you 
through this letter, through to the church in Pergamum. What is the Spirit saying to our church through these words that he inspired, uh, that John was going to write down that were meant to be not just for one church, but let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches, plural. These are words not just for Pergamum, but for all of us. He who has ears, let them hear. Open your ears, open your mind, open your heart, open your understanding so you can hear what God is saying, but not just stop there. Because James says this in James 1.22, do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. And that's just a verse that doesn't let us off the hook, right? <laughs> in anything, is that for us to be followers of Jesus, it doesn't matter at all if you're sitting here this morning saying amen. I mean, you guys don't say amen because you're super quiet, but if you were the type of people who said amen, that doesn't really matter if you're not going to go out and do something with it. It doesn't matter to read something or have a good Bible time in the morning or to hear a sermon or a podcast that you like and go, wow, amen, that's truth. That doesn't matter at all if we're not letting it spur us on to transformation, to repentance, to change. It doesn't matter at all if we're not doing what it says. So it's not really just about, hey, if you've got ears, hear this. It's hear this, understand it, and then what is that going to do moving forward? What is that going to do to help shape you and make you become more like Jesus? So there's this promise here. If you can hear what the Spirit is saying uh, to the churches, if you're victorious, Jesus says you're going to get some hidden manna, and you're going to get a white stone with a new name on it. And so, uh, as always, lots of theories about what this means. I've told you before, uh, when Revelation really wants us to know for sure what something means, it just tells us what it means. And there's lots of places in Revelation where it doesn't do that. And so, if we're not told explicitly, here's what the hidden manna is, then we don't need to worry that much about that. If it was important for us to know exactly what that meant, Jesus just would tell us exactly what it meant. Which is not to say it's not fun and maybe even important to rest with some ideas. And so the manna, you remember the manna story from Israel's story. Israel comes out of the, the bondage of Egypt. They're wandering through the wilderness. They don't have any food. God responds with manna from heaven. And just, they wake up in the morning and there's bread on the ground. And it's, it's nutritious and it's tasty and it's enough to sustain them. Uh, he provides some meat as well. And they are able to live as they journey for 40 years through the wilderness. They're able to survive by the provision of God. And so a couple of theories that I liked, I found interesting as it relates to the hidden manna. There are many more. Uh, but a couple that I found interesting. One was in the Ark of the Covenant, which Israel carried around with them, which was where the presence of God was located, uh, within that ark were the tablets that Moses brought down from the Mount Sinai with the law on it. And in there, there was a jar of manna. And it was a, a reminder of the, the provision of God. And then there was a staff in there as well. Um, the ark went missing at some point in history. And no one really knows for sure what happened to it. But the ark went missing with the tablets, with the manna, with everything. Just in somewhere in the conquests, it went missing and disappeared. And so some think it's connected to that, that there was manna that represented kind of the presence and provision of God, which had gone missing, was now hidden, uh, that Jesus was going to bring some of that blessing back, maybe literally, but probably more likely symbolically. Um, it could just mean that just like God provided manna for Israel, that God is just going to provide for his people. It could just be a, a sort of broader metaphor like that. There are some who have suggested that because Jesus would say, uh, in essence, in John chapter 6, I am the real manna, 
like God provided miracle bread from heaven to sustain Israel, but Jesus says, I'm the true bread of heaven who brings you to eternal life, that it's just a way of pointing to salvation, that the, the bread of heaven that Jesus is talking about is himself. And we don't know for sure. If you want to explore that some more, you can. Um, either way, if Jesus says, here's a reward for you, I want that reward. I don't know what it is, but I want it, right? It sounds good. Uh, I want a part of it. So you can have some fun digging into that one if you want. The stone one is also interesting. So Jesus says, I'll give that person a white stone with a new name written on it, known only to the one who receives it. And so the two theories about this one, no set knowledge on it. It's all just theories. But the two theories about this one that I found compelling, one was uh, in certain cities at that time in the court system, if there was a judge or a jury weighing in on a case, it is said that if they thought you were guilty, they would put a black stone on the table. If they thought you were innocent, they'd put a white stone on the table. And so the white stone then could represent that you are innocent, that you have received heaven's verdict of innocence, not because you're actually literally innocent, but because Jesus has proclaimed you innocent, not because of what we done, we've done, but because of what he has done. And so that could be the white stone that is being referred to. The other one that I also found compelling was that uh, in a time when paper was rare, um, but yet they still had lots of things like theaters and, and circuses and, uh, and amphitheaters and sporting events and things, is that there were places that used stones as tickets. Uh, rather than a paper ticket, because paper was expensive, stones are everywhere, and they would have just different painted stones, and so there were white stones and green stones, and green stones were for the theater, and white stones were for the, the you know, gladiator games or whatever. Um, so if that's the case, then it could be that Jesus is saying, hey, uh, to the one who's victorious, here's your ticket, Primarily, here's your ticket to heaven. Like, here's your ticket to salvation. Here is the, your pass that I will give you. Because, again, you don't save yourself. But I can give you the pass that brings you into heaven. And then on that stone, it says there will be a new name written on it. And this is my favorite part. This part is really, really beautiful. Uh, we were all named by our parents. Jesus says, I'm actually going to give you a new name. There's a new name that I will give to you. And so uh, in Isaiah chapter 62, verse 2, this is talking about Jerusalem. God says to Jerusalem, you will be called by a new name that the mouth of the Lord will bestow. So almost everything in Revelation has an Old Testament connection. But the promise to Jerusalem is that uh, you will have a name. And there's something about giving something a name where it is giving something an identity, right? One of the things that uh, Adam did when God first created everything was he brought all the animals to the man, and the man gave it an identity. The man named all the animals. When we name our children, we're giving them an identity. This is how they are going to be known to the world. This is uh, their name. It is who they are. Are. That name will represent who they are, their reputation. Like, it's an important thing that parents do. We give a child an identity. And so God says to Jerusalem in Isaiah 62, I will speak into your identity. And the promise to the church of Pergamum is, I'm going to give you, yourself, a new name. I'm going to call you who you are. We've seen Jesus do this already in Matthew 16. Peter's name originally was Simon. And Simon comes from a word that means read. And sort of prophetically, that's who Peter was originally. He was kind of like a reed blowing in the wind. Like he sort of say what he needed to say, and he wasn't super strong, and he wasn't super principled. And so Simon is his name. And then when Simon gives his confession of faith, where he says to Jesus, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus says, yes, and I tell you that you are Peter. Peter gets a new name. And the word Peter means rock. 
And so Simon, who was kind of flaky and blowing in the wind, Jesus says, no, here's your new name. Your new name is Rock. And on this rock, I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And so Jesus looks at Peter and says, I know who you really are. I know there's a rock in there. I'm going to make you into a rock. And we've seen this elsewhere in Scripture where Abraham gets a new name. Abraham doesn't have any kids. He gets the name Abraham, which means the father of many. Sarai becomes Sarah. Like, this has happened a few times before. But the idea is that the Lord knows you so well. He knows who you really are. And he will bless you with a name that is his view of who you are. It's beautiful. It's incredible. It's this idea of the God who knows us better than anyone, the God who sees everything, the God who knows everything, will look at us and say, this is who I know that you are. This is your identity as I see it. And, and that'll be just part of the blessing, the gift that is given. Come on up, worship team, as we get ready to wrap up. He knows you. He knows your deeds. He knows your struggles. He knows the place that you live. He knows the context that you're swimming in. He knows the good. He knows the not so good. He knows what needs correcting. But even in his correction, it's the love of God. It's the kindness of God that brings us to repentance. It's the loving parent who says, stop going down that toxic, destructive road. Come back to me. Be faithful to me. Be committed to me. Find everything that you need there. So we have called the year 2021 a year of thriving. We have uh, just chosen that as a title. Uh, we wanted to have that be our focus this year. You're thriving. Much of 2020 just felt like surviving and figuring it out and struggling our way through. And we didn't want to do that this year. This year we wanted to focus on, hey, we have the Spirit with us all the time. He's told us His grace is sufficient for us. He's told us we have everything we need for life and godliness. So how do we focus on thriving this year? We don't know what it's going to hold in terms of, you know, are we open for a long time? Are we locking down again? We, just, we don't have any idea. We don't need to know, really. It's his job to know everything. I don't have to know everything. But what we want to focus on is how do we thrive in this? Whatever we're going through, whether we're in lockdown, whether we're wide open, everything in between. How are we thriving in this season? And so the challenge today, and it really is a challenge, is what role is compromise playing in your life, in your holiness, in your walk with Jesus? What role is compromise playing there? If you were to have given a vow to Jesus, like a, we a wedding vow that says, I'm all yours and you're all mine and I'm going to be faithful as I trust you will be faithful to me, have we broken those vows? Have we pulled away from those vows? Are there areas of sin in our life that we know are there that we need to turn from and come back to him? More subtle than that, are there maybe attitudes in this world? Are there maybe subtle things that are out there in the culture that have infiltrated our hearts, our minds, our theology, that are actually pulling us away from the purity of what we're called to in Jesus? These are not easy questions, but I'm giving you these to wrestle with this week, and I'll challenge you, if you have someone you trust, to talk these things out with someone that you trust. And someone, make sure it's someone you trust, of course, but sometimes we can't see stuff about ourselves, and we need somebody else to come and help us wrestle through this stuff. So what role is compromise playing? If Jesus were to come and fight against compromise in our life, what would that look like? What needs attention? What needs repentance? What needs changing? Are we being faithful to him first and foremost? Is there anywhere where we are not obeying, where we're maybe hearing the word but not obeying the word? And then what does it look like to draw back to him again? What does it look like to say, no, Jesus, I made that vow to you. 
I am committed to you. I am yours, and you are mine. I want you to have all of me. I want to be all in in this. I don't want to be whiffling or waffling. I want to be all in with you and to give him the devotion and the love that he deserves. And as we talk about even just that, uh, as we say every week, one of the ways that we love him, one of the ways that we are devoted to him is through our worship. I know not everybody loves singing, but the Bible says we're going to be singing for all eternity, so we just better get used to singing. And in singing, we express not just our theology, but our love, our devotion to him. And the Bible says he loves it. He is pleased by this. It comes up before him like an offering. And so we're going to worship him together before we go. So if you're in the room, would you stand to your feet, please? If you're at home, you can stand or sit, but the words will be on the screen. Come sing with us, please. Let's give him the devotion that he deserves. <laughs>